Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility, and through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth, or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off-topic. Hey guys, and welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson. What stories are you telling yourself? What labels are you putting on your current situation? Or what categories is your mind putting other people or things in your life into? You see, our mind, our ego, wants to make sense of the world. It wants to put a label on something so it no longer has to consider it. It's easier that way. The mind likes to tell stories that make certain things easier to understand. You see, the brain likes taking shortcuts like that. The problem is that most of us are unaware that these stories are being told, and so we identify with the story without knowing it. We become the stories that we tell ourselves and take action from this place of stories and labels. This can lead to us making judgments about our experience and judgments about others. This can be quite dangerous when not realised. What stories do you tell yourself about your current life? And could these stories be limiting your experience? I'm recently divorced, so... I don't have enough money to, I'm not strong enough to, I'm too old to, I'm too young to, I weigh too much to be able to, I'm disabled so I can't. All these sort of inner dialogues or stories that we tell ourselves sit in a place I call below the line. Below the line sits blame and excuses. Above the line is accountability, responsibility and leadership. Be aware of your thoughts and notice when you're telling yourself a story as to why you can't do something or why something bad happened to you. And then change it. Move from below the line to above the line, from blame and excuses to responsibility and leadership. In today's interview, I speak with a mate who embodies the power of the mind, who shows that when we focus on higher values like vulnerability, gratitude, acceptance, and being present, that anything is possible for each of us in our lives and that we need to change the stories we tell in order to experience life to its fullest. Today, I'm speaking with Dylan Olcott. Dylan Olcott is an Australian tennis player and in 2021 won the Golden Slam. This is kind of a big deal. If you don't know what the Golden Slam is, well, you'll have to listen to the interview. Dylan also runs the Dylan Olcott Foundation where he raises awareness for the disabled community around Australia. In today's interview, we talk about winning the Golden Slam and the shift Dylan made in his mindset to achieve it, his daily rituals for keeping fit, and what his day-to-day looks like to maintain his health. We talk about the work he's doing with AbilityFest and much more. This episode of Finding Space with Alex Tyson is brought to you by Found Space. Make your home a place of wellness to live a long and healthy life. Visit foundspace.com.au for more information. And hey guys, just a quick note that we recorded this podcast before we rebranded our company from iHealth Saunas to Found Space. So if you hear any references of iHealth Saunas, that's why. And so I give you Dylan Alcott. Dylan Alcott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, mate. Mate, it's about time you and I spoke. We, we've stalked each other on Instagram for years. So um, to actually get some face-to-face time, although virtual soon to be over a beer one day, um, is good. 
that's it, man. Unfortunately, we're just talking to pixels through the screen at the moment, but uh, it'll it'll have to do. Now, I've got to get this. I just have to get this off my chest, right? Can you tell us what a Golden Slam is and why it's so significant? Like, we, we, let's start there. Cool. Yeah. So, what it is? It is winning every single Grand Slam and the gold medal in the Olympics or Paralympic Games in the same year. So you can win a Grand Slam, which is all four Grand Slams in one year, but obviously the opportunity to win the Golden Slam only comes every four or five years now because Tokyo was a bit whack because of the um, pandemic. So it doesn't happen very often. And, yeah, it, I mean, I still can't bloody believe that I had the opportunity to not only go and do it this year but to not choke it up and <laughs> win every match all year and to get it done was pretty cool. How many, how many people uh, in tennis have done a Golden Slam before? So Steffi Graf did it. She is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Um, she's got a great tennis family. Her husband is Andre Agassi. Imagine those two having a hit. Not too, not <laughs> bad. Um, and then, so it was only one. And then um, a women's, women's wheelchair tennis player did it on the same day. So um, there's three total now, and I'm the first ever uh, male to ever do it, which is pretty cool. Of course, all forms of tennis, wheelchair or everybody. So, yeah, pretty, not, not a bad list. It's pretty epic, man. When did you realize that that was going to be a possibility? Like, was it was it something that you'd kind of planned for for quite a while? I used to. So I had the opportunity to win the calendar Grand Slam in 2019. Um, I won all slams up until the US Open. And all I thought about was winning the Grand Slam, right? I was like tweeting about like, I want to be like Rod Laver, the last male to ever do it. I want to do it. And what did I do? I built it up. I had an expectation to win and I choked. I got pumped. So after that, I started working with a guy called Ben Crow, who is like the he's like a mindset god. He's a legend, and I really changed my mindset about you know you can have a goal to win, right? But you can't have an expectation to win. The only expectation you can have is to be the best version of you every single time that you compete, and that's not just playing well. That's good sportsmanship, being a good bloke, good preparation, good track, good everything, right? It's not just about winning. And I was like, ah, oh, actually makes sense, right? So I didn't think about it once. At all, the Golden Slam, until I won the French Open. So I'm two out of the four. And then everyone goes, oh, you got the chance to win the Golden Slam. And I was like, I was like, what's that? Like, I, honestly, <laughs> like, I hadn't even thought about it. Right. And then after that, every five seconds, people ask me, geez, you're nervous about the Golden Slam? Somebody's, and it wasn't until about, I was before, I won Wimbledon, and then before Tokyo, I was doing a press conference. And this reporter from Australia said, you've got, the weight of a nation on your shoulders. How are you feeling? And I remember literally laughing like you just did. Mm. And I went, if I lose, right, I'm pretty sure Australia will survive. I'm, I hope my girlfriend will still love me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you and I will still be mates. Maybe not. Maybe you'll drop me. But, you know, <laughs> I think life would go on, right? And it's just a tennis match. I know that might be weird to think, but if I lost, I would have been okay. And that's how I went, thought about it this year. Mm. And that's why I played awesome because I didn't have that pressure on myself because, you know, I knew my life would have still been great regardless of if I had won the Golden Slam or not. So, yeah, I didn't really think about it too much. Everyone else did. Everyone else crapped on about it nonstop, but I didn't think about it much. Longer. Well, expectations of a thief of joy, right? And also when you win and you've got expectations or when you get that promotion at work or when you finally get the person that you think you have a crush on to love you, if, if you, you get a feeling of relief if you have an expectation, mm. not a feeling of joy, you're right. Not a feeling of enjoyment because, like, ah, oh, I finally did that. Oh, what's next? Oh, thank God I did that. It's like, no, enjoy the moment because that moment doesn't happen very often, right? And this, 
when I was lucky enough to win it this year, I took a moment in Tokyo and at the US Open and pretty much from the French Open onwards to go, fuck, how good's this? Sorry, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? What Absolutely, mate. Like, I'm like, fuck, how good's this? You know, I'm so lucky. And I sucked it all in and that meant I enjoyed the experience even more. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Ben Crow. You've been working with him for a little while now. How influential has he been on your overall mindset for things like that? Yeah, I mean, heaps. Uh, you know, I work as a um, corporate, you know, um, like a keynote speaker. I hate the word motivational speaker, but that's what I am. I just tell my story and if it motivates you or not, good on you. I don't try to. But, you know, what? You know, a lot of things that, that I learned that I actually probably was putting into my everyday life, but I wasn't actually putting into my performance mindset was, you know, the importance of a positive perception. You know, it's not the events in life that dictates the life that you live. It's how you perceive those events that determines the path that you take. And one thing that Crowe says, which I love, is it is our decisions and not our conditions that determines the life that you live. Because you and I can go through the same thing, right? You and I, could we could lose our partner tomorrow and we could live exactly different lives when that same thing happened about how we view that moment, right? So people look at me and go, oh, like the first thing that when my dad says, I've got to go watch my son at the Paralympics, what do you think the first thing people say to him is? Not anymore, because they might know who I am, but what do you reckon it was? I reckon they probably said like, oh, I'm like, I'm so sorry to hear. Well, I'm sorry to hear what happened to him. And he goes, what happened to him? He's about to win a gold medal. That's what happened to him. Right? <laughs> but their bias is that. So, you know, I had this really, you know, positive perception to everything to do with my life. Yet when, and like I'm completely comfortable with my disability, yeah, when I started performing on the court, I told myself I have to win every tournament to be compared to Ash Barty. Because to be recognised or to be accepted when you are disabled, you've got to be exceptional, right? Because if that's what that's the shame story I told myself. But I actually externally wasn't actually felt like that. I only felt that about my career. And then I was like, oh my god, I do do that, right? And it's about the stories you tell yourself. And mm-hmm. um, you know, in every facet of my life, I was comfortable and loving it. But when it came to trying to win tennis tournaments. I felt that pressure to win everything to be compared to an able-bodied person who won one thing. And you know what? I'm worthy just as I am, right? I'm loved just as I am. And um, it's been powerful, you know, working with him. Not only like reiterating the good things that I've been doing, but also learning some new things along the way. And he's just a fucking good bloke, to be honest. (laughs) And like he, you know, works with my partner, Chantel. We have beers together. He's got a beautiful family himself. Uh, I'm very lucky to work with him, and the res- the the the, um, the resume that he's got, he's worked with some guy got Andre Agassi, Tiger Woods, Dusty Martin, Ash Barty, um, Steph Gilmore, some washed up wheelchair tennis player called Dylan Orcott. So um, it's not a bad list. So yeah, he's a good man. It's cool, man. I mean, that sort of way and approach to life is super empowering, you know. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in, that's not the sort of things that we get programmed with, right? Like we tell ourselves the bullshit stories which keep us down here, you know, instead of being able to experience the most life has to offer. Correct. Well, I mean, I'll ask you, what do you think your biggest strengths are as a person? My biggest strengths, uh, for me, it comes back to what you were saying, actually. Everything that happens in life is gift. And over the past few years, I've certainly worked to really to, to see that and to remind myself when things that most people may call, oh, that's really fucking hard or challenging or bad luck. I'm just like, hmm, like, what's the opportunity here? Like, this is happening for a reason. So just like accept it and be present and, 
you know, deal with it. Like yeah. you said, it's about the choices that you make. It's not what happens to you. It's how you take action from that place. Yeah, I like that. Optimism is a good one. But, like, people be like, to me, what's my biggest strength? And, like, this is why I work with Crowey. Mine are authenticity, vulnerability. Mm. And you'd be like, vulnerability? Like, what are you talking about, right? Every manager, like, CEO, whatever, they're like, we can't be vulnerable mm. because we lead teams in that. But it's like, no, you relate to people but also yourself by being vulnerable, right? Asking for help, you know, telling people you love them, whatever it is. And like, you know, I would previously would have been like, I'm gritty, I work hard, and you know, <laughs> all this fucking bullshit, right? And that is true. I am gritty and I work hard, but they're not my biggest strengths. My biggest strength is probably authenticity, vulnerability, and optimism and being grateful and gratitude, right? And they're like, you would not even think that would be my answers previously, mm. but that's what it is. And it's changing that mindset, you know what I mean? And I think that's a cool way to do it. And it's nice that the more you normalise conversations like that, the more people actually believe it, right? And how much, like, you know, you might be listening, oh, that's bullshit, like my boss at work's a dickhead and doesn't listen to me, right? And that they might be a dickhead, I agree, but that doesn't make them a good leader, right? Because being a, being a stoic know-it-all isn't actually being a good leader. Mm. It's about understanding but, but always being authentically you, which I think takes time to learn and it took me forever because I was embarrassed about my disability forever. So now that I'm comfortable with it, I can authentically be me and that's when I think my life started, li- I started living my life longer. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's like... There's so much power in being like, yeah, I actually have no fucking idea. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and you learn because you get help, right? Mm. And help is important man, for sure. Mm. So just while we're off air, uh, you mentioned something about uh, about getting hot when you're in Tokyo. What was your what was your lead up to that? Uh, obviously, it was going to be hot over in Tokyo. And how did you kind of prep for that? And I guess in general, how do you just go about prepping for a Grand Slam? Yeah, I mean, I work my – I probably underestimate – Sorry, not underestimate, but I don't like crapping on about how hard I work, right? Mm. I just work hard, but I work hard, mm. right? So, like, I work – I train four hours a day, six days a week, like, all year round. You know what I mean? So, before you and I spoke, um, what have I done today? I've done an hour and a half in the gym, like a finisher on the hand, like a strength session, then a finisher on the hand crank, and then I played tennis for two hours, and then I got in the car and came to here, and now I'm talking to you, you know? So, and then I'm filming for three hours this afternoon for my consulting company, GSA, like, and, but I like working hard because it keeps me fresh and you get that routine and stuff. But do you know, I'm going to ask you, did you know how effing hot it gets in Tokyo? Did you know that? I uh, know, I know you how. the hottest place in the world where, where you know, Tokyo is 80th on the list. Yeah, like I, I didn't even know, mate. It was thirty six degrees and like eighty percent humidity. Mm. Like, it was cr- crazy. Yeah. Like I'm thinking, like it's like Brisbane or Darwin, but worse. Right. Like, so like as humid, but hotter. <laughs> I, I didn't know that existed. And um, like regulating your heat is so important when you're an athlete, but especially when you have a disability. So you know, some people I play against, if you if the break of your neck is above. If you if your spinal breaks above T two, I think that's that what regu- like regulates your sweat under T two. So if you break above that, you can't regulate your sweat at all, right? As you go down your spinal cord, the, the regulation of your heat and temperature is different. So, like I could sit in my sauna, um, my IL sauna, which I love, right, all day, and my, my socks would be dry. That I, I just don't sweat on my feet, right? Mm. So if you think about that, if the, the parts in your body you don't sweat. Like, which is great. I don't get smelly feet, so there's always a pros and cons. Happy days. Um, yeah, but like, you know, the 
like you've got to figure out ways to cope. And I think also when you're looking at your opponent, I actually, when I'm like in Tokyo, it was, I was 4-3 down in the third set against this young kid called Niels. He's 18. He's like, he, he's, I've been his hero his whole like life. He looked up to me, but he's the best guy ever. We've got the best relationship. I'm a really good friend. I sent him a signed book for his like 15th birthday, but when we're on the court, he wants to rip my head off, like <laughs> wants to smash me. And I was down 4-3. I thought I was done, right? And I remember looking across the other side of the net going, there's no effing way you've done more work than me. There's no way. There's no way you're going to beat me. And that work is not just hitting forehands and backhands. That is, you know, the work that I did trying to get heat um, acclimatisation and things like that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would train for four or five hours every day and then sit in my sauna every night. So I would do like I started at 20 minutes, thought I was going to die, and then slowly you just get more and more and more and you up the temperature. And I, I think it was my little secret thing that I did that no one else did. You know what I mean? Like, and you'd be surprised how much fitter and healthier, one, you feel when you do it, how much it helps your recovery. But most of all, when I went from an air-conditioned room in Tokyo to outside, I started sweating straight away, like straight away, right? And I, you don't understand how much better you feel physically when your body regulates your heat, you know what to do, things like that. I, like I underestimated it. I really did. And because I had done that stuff, mate, I, I frothed my sauna. Like I love it. Like I like ask anyone. I will not shut up about it. Like I tell everyone to get one. And now even though I'm not going to Tokyo, like – it's, I just do it anyway because of my – and the, you know what my girlfriend will say, she tell, even just for our mental, mental health, you know, and stuff, we just feel a million bucks using it. So, um, yeah, I, I did everything. I, mate, I was in a heat chamber. I was in the sauna. I was training my ass off and it paid the bills because I was lucky enough to get it done, which was good. Would it be good for – I imagine it would be good for the Australian Open as well. I mean, it's always pretty bloody hot for the AO as well. And you'd be surprised how quickly you lose it. Like, you know, I did I – did, um, the Tokyo, and then I did the US Open, and then I did my fourth round of hotel quarantine. <laughs> uh, never again, please, ever, ever again. So I've done eight weeks in the last year. Wow. That's insane, man. I've done two weeks, and I was like, yeah, okay, I, I, that, that's enough for my life. Yeah, I struggled this one because I went from the biggest high to my life to the – and I'm not complaining because, uh, you know, everyone else, no one could do that, go overseas, people lining up at Centrelink, you know, but I was like enough to um, – go around the world and do my job. So, but I'm not going to lie, it sucked. Anyway, I got out, got home, had a sauna. Mate, if you hadn't had a sauna in a while, I was like, oh, I feel like, I, you know, it smacks you back in the face. So I think that consistency of it as well is is really important. So I've actually started getting back in it, which I'm enjoying. But, yeah, for the summer, again, I'll be in there every day, mate. It's the best. How much extra work do you need to put in? I mean, you're obviously putting in heaps of work. That gives you that belief, you know, that you're going you're gonna to beat this guy and, probably write it on his next Christmas card, even though you're 4-3 down. Um, like how much extra work do you need to do compared to, say, a normal tennis player? Like is it is it elevated above what their normal workload would be? No, it's probably this. Like, people probably think it's under, but it's the same. But the big difference is this. Today I did back and biceps, right? I used my arms. I used the hand bike. I used my arms. I played tennis. I used my arms. I got in the car. I used my arms. I had a shower this morning. I had to transfer out of my wheelchair into my shower. I use my arms, right? Mm. So that's all you use. So I think where you could split your day between using your legs or your arms or whatever, we don't have that option. And the biggest one as well is I tore my supraspinatus in my shoulder, which is like the, the muscle in your shoulder, when I was um, uh, 19, getting my wheelchair out of the car. Had a 
uh, keyhole, but like a Rico, made three months in a sling. I can't use my legs at all. Mm. I think my girlfriend at the time, what a legend, um, Chelsea, to shower me, held me in the shower, had to live in my dad's place for the first month. He had to wash me, dress me, do everything, right? Because I can't, I can't do anything without my arms. So it was a real wake-up call for me that even when I retire, I'm not, I can't just become a fat slob. And not that I want to, but like I just can't. Like I can't afford to. Because if something happens to me and you're not fit and strong, you're done. Mm. Right. So um, you know, I'm not saying I'm a health freak, like I enjoy beer and I enjoy, you know, you have to have that balance where you eat a naughty meal sometimes and stuff. But yeah. like I'll, I'll I don't train to bodybuild, I train to look after myself, put it that way. Like to get stronger, but not stupid strong and get injured, like just to look just to be really strong, but strong in a way where I always look after my shoulders, my elbows. And my wrists, because if my arms go, I'm, I'm cooked. So what's like a, besides playing tennis, like how do you actually maintain your upper body? Because you train your arms and then you literally use your arms for every single thing the rest of the day compared with someone who might go and train legs and then they might be kind of sitting down for a period of time or not continuing to use their legs strenuously. Like how do you kind of manage the recovery and all that? Yeah, recovery, oh, you, you stole the word. So you know, I complained to my trainer, oh, I'm using my arms a lot. And he goes, well, fuck off. That's shit. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, it's about looking after yourself. But I, what I used to do is just constantly smash myself. Probably didn't eat enough food because I wanted to look good. Like I trained to look good, not trained to be good. Does that make sense? Mm. I think there's a big difference, especially as an athlete. Like the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Tyson Fury, is like actually a bit fat. Like, right? Yeah. That's all, but in a good way because that's what works for him. Right. And I and I think we all even like you watch like, you know, I watch heaps of AFL players and they're told just to get massive, right? And then they do their knee, they do their hamstring, yeah, do their calves, they can't run. Yet when they were coming up, they used to dominate. And I'm like, Am I the only one that what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Like train to be good, don't train because you think you've got to do that. And I used to be one of them. So now as you get older, I really listen to my body, right? If I had a short shoulder, I'd just be like, fuck it, I'll just go and do what I want to do. But now I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, don't be an idiot because your money, your arms are worth your life to you, you know what I mean? So it's about that balance. But, man, I do 11 sessions a week, five on court, right, for two hours, and then six is a makeup of maybe four gym sessions, two fitness sessions. The fitness sessions will be we push up the hills of the MCG, you know, the MCG car park. Oh, yeah. We do like eight efforts from the MCG to the top like eight times, bang, 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 bang. We do sprints on grass because grass, you have greater friction. Yeah. We do boxing. We do everything. We do whatever. So, you know, um, to be the best, you're going to train like the best. So we, we definitely do a lot of work. Mm. And how many people in your team do you have? Like how many how many people are behind Dylan Orcott? Oh, I mean, like about a thousand, to be honest. But <laughs> um, like, you know, I mean, I think you're a part of the team now, you know, because we know each other and you helped me out getting ready, getting ready for the um Tokyo with the sauna and stuff. And and I mean that. Like, like um you heard me say in the in my press conference how I've been you getting ready in the sauna and stuff, and and I mean that, and it's a it, it's not a when I win, it's not a me. You might hear me say we, like I just said that we, because it's it's a big team effort. There's my coach, Francois, my doubles partner, Heath. We train together every day. There's a few guys that, like, play in Melbourne. There's my manager, Mark. There's my, um, like, day-to-day manager, Georgie, who also runs my foundation. There's my brother. There's my family. There's my partner, Chantel. Um, my dog, Sauce, he's a big part of it, you know. And and my mates, like, it's a big it, it takes an absolute village. Like, I'm serious. Like, mm-hmm. And normally there'd be 12 people travelling with me. Um, this year it was me, my coach, 
Francois and Heath Madel's partner. That was it because of COVID. Couldn't get visas. So it was so different and it made it like so much harder but like also not as sweet because they weren't there but also more sweet because it was so hard. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, you know, look when you win a tournament, you, you win the biggest match of your life. Oh, and Brenda, I forgot to mention Brenda, who runs our program at Tennis Australia. Like at, at the US Open in Tokyo, it was just Francois, Heath, Brenda and I. And you look up, you're like, I've just done the best thing I've ever done in my life. And like, you know, where's my family? But in saying that, because it was just the four of us also, it was pretty, it, it was bittersweet, but also pretty cool because we knew how hard it was. Like, like my teammates, they would go, sorry, my competitors, they finished playing in Tokyo. They went home for two days. Like they'd fly back to Amsterdam, mm-hmm. go home, for th- then go to the US Open. We couldn't go home for five months because we had, like, you know, you don't understand how hard that is. Like we were just rat shit yeah. by the end of it. So, but as I say, I look back and be like, you know, good on us because it was bloody hard work to get them. Mm, absolutely, man. I mean, just having to quarantine so much to come back into Australia is just a real hindrance and you start seeing people from around the world like flying around, no worries, and it's just like, oh. Yeah, it was pretty loose, man. I went in I went in Tokyo, had 20 beers, um, went to sleep, woke up at 6, like went to sleep for two hours, 6 a.m. We flew to New York for the US Open. Remember like, I, and then I, we got to New York, I made it my Dom Dollar is a big DJ, and I just went on like his Instagram, like he's in New York. Man, I went to a, like a 30,000-person festival. I went from like, Locked out in the village to that, and I was like, I, I, I don't think I've ever had a mask glued on my face. So, but I was on stage, like I was in the VIP, so I was safe. But it's just so different. But it's pretty cool now. Australia's caught up on the backs, and you know we're all getting out and about now. You know what I mean? It's crazy, which is cool. Mm. And it does give you some perspective in life as well. Like I'm up in the sunny coast, and we, you know, can go out and go to go to gigs and whatever, yeah. and. We were having a whinge the other day because we we're like, oh, I have to wear a mask when we go to this place. And I was like, hold on, Kristen, like my girlfriend, like, what are we fucking complaining about? Yeah. Like, there's people in Melbourne who can't leave their fucking house to go for oh, five man. kilometers. So let's just shut up and enjoy the show, you know? Man, I'm complaining about like, oh, I'm so tired flying around the world. And then I was like, you know, stop being, <laughs> that, like, you know, that's where that gratitude's important because, like, hang on a sec, because it makes you realize and you snap out of it. But yeah. You bastard, man. I'm from Melbourne, so we've had about 200. We had 270 days lockdown, of which I've only probably done 150. So I'm actually not too bad myself. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I was down there last year, so I, I, I yeah, did you had a taste. Of that. Yeah, I got a bit of a taste of it. So let's back up a bit. So how far? Uh, this is a question purely for my own knowledge because I don't know. How far down can you feel? Like, do you have sensation in your body, and then when can you not feel anymore? Yeah, so I've got like I'm an incomplete um, paraplegic, so got a little bit in my legs and stuff. But like, if I sat on a burning plate, I probably wouldn't notice yeah. very well. But, like, if I got stabbed, I would. You know what I mean? There you go. In fact, that's a hard thing. But, like, so I've got enough, a little bit, a little bit. So I can, like, I think naturally have kids, hopefully. Like, we'll, we'll soon see when we're trying to do that. Um, but I can't walk, can't move, got no abs. Yeah. Um, got really severe scoliosis. I was born with a tumour wrapped around my spinal cord. So it really damaged my spinal cord across um, up to about T6 all the way down through my lumbar, so, like, all the way down. And, um, yeah, so no walking, no standing, very minimal balance kind of stuff if I'm not strapped into my wheelchair and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm lucky I get a, like a little bit of feeling when if something goes wrong, it's the human body's amazing. Even if you haven't got feeling, I don't know if you know this, but you'll be like, one of my teammates who's incomplete, got nothing, they'll be like, oh, I feel sick. And you're like, when do I feel sick? And you start vomiting and you're like, fuck, what's going on? Like, what? And you start looking around and they're like, oh, I've got a huge cut on my foot. Oh. You don't know. But your body tells you. Your body's amazing, man. Mm. Like, I'll, 
I've had like cellulitis, which is like this blood infection in your legs, I think it is, blood, I think. Okay. And like, bang, man, I'll just start like shaking out of nowhere. And I'm like, fuck, what's going on? Like, what the hell? I was fine five minutes ago. <laughs> and it's the body telling you something's wrong, even in places you don't know. Crazy, crazy how well it works. Yeah, well, especially when you listen to it. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there. Yeah, and like, I got better at that, man. Like, I, I remember my, I was talking to my old housemate, Lucy, like that. She came home and I'm on the couch, like in, it's like summer and I've got like ski jacket, beanie, <laughs> like shaking, sweating. Right. And she's like, we're going to hospital. I'm like, man, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm glad I went. She's like, the doctor was like, yeah, glad you came in. Probably would have died. I was <laughs> like, can you do that again? So in my old age, I've asked, I listened to my body. <laughs> Wait, why, why were you so, why were you so cold? Yeah, I had, well, yeah, because I had this infection in my legs right. called cellulite, which goes, I think goes in your blood, they swell up, but they haven't swelled up yet, so I didn't know. But I was looking and going, what's going on with me? Like, But I was like cruel. And then right. they have to be on a drip because if it gets into like your bloodstream and your heart and your all thoughts. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, so are you still getting circulation in your feet, like blood circulation? Not great. Not amazing. That's the one thing I struggle with. Yeah. I wear socks all the time because I don't care because my feet are cold because I don't notice, but my girlfriend – they're like ice blocks, so I, she doesn't like them when I touch her in bed. So I wear socks. Um, but, um, yeah, that's the one thing I struggle with. And also, like, um, when I travel in a, in a plane, I'm in a, I'm in a seat like you, but I can't – you get up and cruise around. So one thing I've learned, I had real problems flying, so I wear medical-grade compression socks, which I recommend everybody wear, if you're not disabled. Everyone. They're the best things ever. They help with your circulation so much, so I wear them when I travel. And I found even using the um, – Sauna and stuff has really helped, you know what I mean? Like trying to regulate that and I've done some research, which has been cool. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say um, my dad used to wear those compression socks whenever we'd fly internationally. I'm like, Dad, you've got to hide those things, man. The only <laughs> thing is you've got to wear pants. If you right. wear shorts, you look like an absolute tool. Um, and I, I made a rule that I only travel in pants because you look like they're like wannabe school socks but like just crap and they go really high. You're like a wannabe footy player. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or like basketball players. Yeah. Do you have to do you have to like move your legs daily to try and get some sort of circulation happening? Or are you do you just yeah. wake up, you're out of bed and you're like, yeah, there's my legs, I don't need to do anything. The two things I worry about is I mean, I when I'm on a couch, I, I elevate them. So like and the big thing is um one of the most dangerous things for people who can't feel is getting a pressure sore, which is because you sit on your bum all day mm-hmm. in your wheelchair and then you sit on the couch or whatever. Like um I had a mate called Ben when I grew up. He's a legend from Indigo, and he got a pressure sore. Didn't know for like three months, bro. And then he had to go to hospital for like nine months. Oh my god! He was down to the bone. He had no idea. Like, oh. yeah. So you know, I all I, I got a bit of feeling. So if I got a sore bum, I go, I ask my brother or now my girlfriend or whoever, can you like check? Can you check out? Because if I get a pressure sore, you just got to get off your bum for a week. Mm. So what I do is because I'm in my chair all day. When I get home, I try and put my legs up, get off my bum. Because once you get one, you're cooked. Or if you got a DVT, you're cooked. So you might as well try and stay on top of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Have you ever, like, do you ever get phantom, like, like, do you ever feel like you can move your legs or, or or have you ever, like, had a dream that you were walking? Good question. I've never dreamt that I've walked. People that I did, like that I love me have, which is funny, but I never have because I, I don't give a shit. Like, mm. i got no desire. Actually, people started, you know, you can do those face swap um Oh, yeah. And you can put your face on, like, Brad Pitt's and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah. Uh, people started doing that and sending to me. I'm like, that looks fucking weird. That weird man. <laughs> like, because I've never actually pictured it. Um, and I don't get fan of pain because I've never had enough of feeling to, 
like, no, if I get pain, like, because I do feel a bit, I know something's wrong, you know what I mean? Like, if I twist my ankle getting out of the car and my, my leg hurts, I go, fuck that, I must twist my ankle pretty bad there. <laughs> you know, like, for, I, I, I dropped a 15-kilo weight plate on my foot yesterday. Oh. But I kind of caught it. So right. if I dropped it straight, I'm like, oh, I've got to get a hospital, I'll probably break my foot. <laughs> but it really hurt. So I kind of give myself 24 hours where I'm like, if this is still sore tomorrow, I'll go get a check. And it went away. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if I start vomiting or whatever. Um, but ampu- phantom pain is what, you, what you're referring to is from amputees. So uh-huh. if you have a leg, right, and you lose your leg in a whatever, car accident or something, and then you've got no leg from the knee down, like you wake up and your foot is physically getting stabbed in your foot. Mm. It's not there, which is a real thing. Because I've got a podcast called Listen Able where we profile the lives of people living with disability or affected by it. We've had a lot of amputees and I'm like, fair. I'm like, it's a really, we're like really great podcast to educate yourself about disability, but in a really fun, entertaining, light way. Because I'm like, fan and pain, bullshit, not real. Like, like, prove me otherwise. And they're like, mate, it's real. But I'm like, yeah, I haven't got a leg though. Like, you know what I mean? And I've been, I couldn't believe it. Some of the stories, it's real. It just comes and goes. So yeah, it's definitely a thing. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, talking to you now, like something that's really standing out for me is is the mindset, and but also that you don't really know of a life prior to your disability, right? So it's just like this is just my world, you know. And this is this is my existence. I imagine that's quite different for someone who becomes uh, disabled, you know, once they've already been alive for twenty years. Like, yeah. what what's kind of the different things going on in people's minds when they go through something like that? Yeah, it's a great question because people ask me that and I'm going to ask you, would you rather know what it's like to kick a football, surf and feel the sand between your toes and lose it or have no idea like I do? Ah, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah, yeah, true, but it's all, again, this is not conditions. I've got no idea, man. Mm. Um, What I will say is this. One positive about being 20 years old and having a car accident or whatever is you might already have a partner, mates, a family around you who can support you through that. One thing I've realised and learnt firsthand is kids can be brutal. Mm. So being born with a disability and never having that um, integration to society that you might have already had by playing footy, by having a part-time job, all these things that people with disability find hard because we don't get the opportunities, that makes it tough. It makes sense, you know what I mean? So, But in saying that, if you having that, your life turned upside down is such a big trauma that might be a negative thing, you know? So, again, how long is a piece of string? It's a really hard one to answer. I'm comfortable with my situation, but um, I know, you know, going to a rehab where everyone's had an accident is, like, one of the worst places in the world because it's uh, everyone's – and, you know, they're also doing – like, I feel for everyone in there, but because they're also doom and gloom in there and it's not, you know, it's not the, the people who's there's fault. Um, but, you know, they are getting better and the people that work, they're doing a great job, but – um, I think that, you know, there are – because the reason it's hard is, you know, when I turned on the TV as a kid, the only time I saw myself was in a road safety ad where someone drink drives. What's the next scene? Someone in tears in a wheelchair because their life's over. So if you have a car accident and you end up in a wheelchair, what do you think your life is? Mm, yeah. But it's not. But they think that, right? So that is what we have to change, that unconscious bias that we've created in our society, that having a disability is a death sentence. It's not. But that only changes with more mainstreaming and more normalisation of it, but also, you know, more opportunities for employment, you know, in education, things like that, because 
Um, if we, you cannot be, we can't see. If you see more people out there being normal with a disability, well, then people realise that they're lost all over. Mm. Yeah, it's education, man. I mean, I've had people on the podcast recently talking about trying to educate around like women's cycles, right, and periods. And like, let's yeah. have a conversation around that. Let's have a conversation around money and how to grow our wealth because we're not taught that stuff, you know. And the the narrative in in our culture is is always negative with those things. And it's it's a similar kind of thing with what you're talking about here, you know. Exactly right. How do we actually improve education for that sort of thing? And how do we actually change that narrative? Oh, it is first and foremost, it comes from a lack of like having more opportunities. So. The hardest part of my day is not if there's no ramp. It's an, a lack of expectation of people think you can do. Mm. You know, like I've been congratulated when I'm ordered a coffee like only six months ago. Someone said it's inspirational to see you here getting your own coffee. Right. And I'm like, what if she's an HR manager, a recruiter, a school teacher, a politician? Bang. How the fuck am I going to get a job mm. if, if they're the ones hiring, you know, whatever. Yeah. So that mindset needs to change. But, it, you know, the younger the younger generation, they like people come up to me, kids, they could not care less. I'm in a wheelchair. Like they don't even know pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like they just see me as dealing tennis player and their parents are not, not parents who are like 40, but their their parents, like 60 plus, I've written them off. Their <laughs> 40s are kind of understanding. But the next journey, but it starts from education in school. Like what you just said is so true. We did this thing um, at my school called personal development, like once a week, right? Mm-hmm. We learn about everything, like race, religion. We actually did an episode on money, like a week on money, all these things. Guess how many in five, year seven to 12, guess how many, so once a week from year seven to 12, how many modules or education was there on disability during? Mm, zero or like one? Zero. Zero. Right, the only, I had to do the education for my mates. Imagine if you, from prep to seven, in just one day a year, you do something around disability, one class, when a kid goes to school with a disability, they don't have to explain themselves because it's already been done and they're included. But but also, you know, the the biggest thing is like, so after we finish this today, I've got three hours of filming with my consulting company called GSA. So we educate governments and corporates to help them better understand the needs of people with disabilities. Um, we have 50 consultants that work with us, for us, together. Guess how many have a disability? More than 50%? Or 50, 100%. Of it. Or, and then the people that work in our head office, like people with lived experience, like my brother, my dad, people that mm-hmm. understand, right? And we are showing that people with disability can be great employees. But what the biggest thing is the reason you should care about disability is not to get the warm, fuzzy feelings, all right? Mm-hmm. It, there is that corporate social responsibility aspect, but there are 4.5 million Australians with some form of disability, one in five people, right? One in five people. And guess what? We got money and we want to spend it. We want to be consumers just like you. We want employment just like you. We want to travel just like you. We want to go out for dinner just like you. So stop not giving a shit about us because it's an economic decision for you to care about us as well, for you, right, for organisations. And it's changing that narrative, right? Back when we were doing this, people were like, oh, do I really care? Do I need to do that? I don't know much. About-. I'm like, well, you can make shed load more money. And they're like, money? Rip up. And that's okay. Right, but that's a good thing because we just want to be included like everybody else. Mm. But you know, unemployment for people with disability more than double everybody people. Of the 4.5 million, only 50% have work. That's fine, that's not good enough, right? Mm. Of the 28 leading economic countries in, in the world, the OECD countries, Australia, 25 out of 28 of people with disability living in poverty. 
But you, but we've got great access. Everyone's like, but we've got great access. I'm like, we do. But our understanding, but our biases, mm. our our discrimination is, is quite high. And it's about, but it's not about yelling at people to change it. It's about showing them. Yeah. So that's what we do. We work with people to educate them and have that change, which is cool. No, that's cool, man. And I, I resonate with what you're saying. You know, you, so you talk to a lot of younger people about these things or about race and like, it's almost like they just know equality like and they yeah. just understand you don't have to explain like why that person shouldn't be segregated or whatever they they just get it you know what i mean yeah like even just cool things like um there's a scarecrow competition near where i live in, in this town i live in that work part of melbourne and um this little girl made a scarecrow of me she's like six and it's got like wheels like like full wheelchair and like she doesn't even realize i'm a wheelchair she's like oh that's just dylan Alcott. it's just cool like a six-year-old like you know what i mean and 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 that's what it's about. And they have no idea. And but we learned that off our the generation before to discriminate, to have biases. But hopefully our generation, because we're the same age, we're not going to pass it on to our kids. So then it'll just go away. You know what I mean? And that's the dream. I know it's a bit blue sky, but I think it's not far from happening, which would be awesome. Mm. Yeah, I think part of it is like like, is there even a challenge with the with the label of disability? Like it implies that there's something missing. Well, it's an interesting question, and I'm going to give you a little learnings here. Please. You say people go, yeah, but disabilities are because you straight away go, disability is a bad thing, right? You're like, you know, because it seems a bit lesser than, but that's only because you've been told disability is a bad thing. Mm. So now you've, again, we as people think it's a bad thing. What's wrong with having a disability? Like, you've got a different haircut than me. You've got different facial hair than me. We've both got different t shirts on. So, another difference is you're, I'm in a wheelchair and you're not. Huh? Who cares? So what makes me disabled is not medically what's wrong with me. What makes me disabled is the inaccessibility of society, right? Because if we went to the same restaurant and it was all ramped and I could go to the toilet and everything, I'm not disabled in that, right? You and I are the same. But if we go somewhere else where I can't access what you can, that's what's part of my disability. So but, but it brings up a really interesting point because when I go down the street, I'll use kids again. The other day I was like a little kid went, Oh my God, what's wrong with him? All right? And what do you reckon the parents did? Bang, smack them. Don't you dare. Don't say that. I'm so sorry. Don't you say that. I said, they're allowed to ask questions, right? But if you tell your kids that I'm like a trans, a zombie, like treat them like that, they're going to be scared of me forever and they're going to think it's different. And another thing is I met a, I met a little girl the other day. She had cerebral palsy. She was in a wheelchair. Um, I think her name was Caitlin. I was like, hey, Caitlin. And I was like, I, like you're in a wheelchair, I'm in a wheelchair too. What's your disability, Caitlin? Mum goes, she's not disabled, hasn't got a disability. And I was like, but she, but she does. No, she doesn't. We tell her she doesn't. I go, but you should tell her she does and tell her having a disability is an awesome thing. It's a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. right? We can't add to that unconscious bias that it's a negative thing. So when people say to me, it's really funny, they're like, we've got the uh, differently, differently abled tennis player, I go, disabled, just fucking say it, right? Because it's what it is. And I think if you own that, it's a, it's a more of a better thing, which is which is a really interesting mm. channel. I'm glad you asked that question. Good question. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you kind of changing this scene? And um, tell me a bit about what you're doing with Ability Fest because I think that's something really epic. Yeah, so we were at, so I've got a non-for-profit. We've got a non-for-profit called the Dylan Alcott Foundation where we help young Australians with disability achieve their dreams through university scholarships, startups, um, so they can start their own businesses, you know, mobility aids to go to the Paralympics, whatever it is. And um, 
it's awesome, but you need money. So our big fundraiser is an all-inclusive music festival um, where it's just like Beyond the Valley, Splendour in the Grass. We just have some added accessibility features so people with disability can come with their able-bodied mates and uh, it's the best day, bro. Like we have pathways, platforms, so Auslan um, interpreters on stage signing every single lyric spoken, a sensory chill area for people with sensory disabilities like autism if they need to go chill out for a little bit. Um, and, yeah, we've raised over, I think, well over half a million bucks the first two. Uh, and, yeah, mate, it's just awesome. It's one of my favourite days of the year. But also trying to show other events, you know, you can do this. you just got to ask the questions you need and it's not as hard as you think. Mm. That's epic, man. Are you going to be there crowd surfing a bit? Yeah, I'll be off my head. So you can't <laughs> buy me buy me a beer, no doubt. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully that's possible. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, we'll be sharing a beer sometime soon. Um, I think we should wrap it up there. I know you got a few more things to to get onto. You're a pretty busy man. Um, I'm very grateful for your time so far as well. Was there anything else that uh, you wanted to share with the audience? No, man. I'm just I'm a fan too. I love the podcast. So, my um, thanks for having me on, brother. And keep doing what you're doing. And uh, yeah, anybody that has any questions or wants to reach out, just hit me up on my socials. I try and get back to everyone. And, I'm not very good at it. Um, it took you a couple of cracks getting back to me, but then I got there. So, um, but mate, no, I love it. And yeah, thanks for the support that you've given me, to be honest. And um, I appreciate it. And the reason I was such a, a, a hot mess uh, in Tokyo was because I actually used our sauna together, which is good. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and looking forward to all the opportunities to come. Thank you, my man. See you soon. Cheers, dude. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.